It's time for another Shadow Talk. In this week's episode, we dig into all things exploits for this week as news emerges of a virtual box exploit as well as a Cisco Zero Day for a demand of service. Um, we'll be discussing those and more in this week's Shadow Talk. And in London, I'm delighted to be here with Raphael Amado. Hello, Raph. Hey, Mike. Good to have you here. It's delightful to be here, yeah. And uh, on the line, um, we also have Richard Gold, Dr. Richard Gold, Head of Security Engineering at Digital Shadows. Hello, Rich. How are you? Very well, thanks. Good to have you both here. It's been lovely this week. It's been absolutely lovely. Um, So there's a couple of stories and quite a lot of hype. I don't know where we want to begin, perhaps with the news of a zero day uh, for Cisco, uh, specifically one uh, denial of service vulnerability uh, that it was exploiting. Uh, Raf, do you want to give us an overview of exactly what the news story is this week? Sure thing, Mike. So Cisco published an advisory over a bug in the devices running its ASA. Now, this is a bug in a denial. So this bug is a denial of service vulnerability that can be remotely exploited by an unauthenticated attacker. Now, this story picked up a lot of coverage. One reason being that Cisco posted the alert without actually issuing a, a patch or a software update to address the vulnerability. Uh, other things we know are that the vulnerability has not yet been exploited on mass, but it has been seen in attacks in well a limited number of attacks so far. Yeah, and, and I don't know about you, Rich, but this it certainly sounds interesting to me. Yeah, completely. This is really surprising for me because usually we see these kinds of DOS vulnerabilities getting a write up, getting a bit of press, but rarely do we have an advisory from you know a big name company like Cisco where they're actually talking about in the wild attacks happening using this DOS exploit. Usually, I mean, it's a remote code execution RCE that gets all of the glory. So this is really surprising for me and quite a departure. And I wonder sort of to myself what that actually indicates. What are the goals of the attackers here? Are they just testing it? Are they, maybe they're trying to get RCE? and it's failing so it ends up dosing the machine or whether they're just dosing the machines for for the for the funsies or if there's more going on behind it it's an interesting one yeah so i am I'm, I'm guilty as many people are of associating dollar service with kind of skiddy hacktivist campaigns and thinking well it doesn't really matter does it they're often ineffective and um it's sort of a bit of a rubbish threat now when we looked into the research with Anapsis on SAP applications, I mean, that's a big concern for organizations. The downtime that can have um, has real impacts on on the business. Yeah, exactly. And your firewall VPN box, you know, is, is a major concern, right? Even if you've got a bunch of them in like an HA cluster, it's still going to be an issue if people start taking them down. Now, but I think it's an interesting point that you raised because when there's the sort of skiddy DOS stuff, they're usually talking about, you know, ping floods or some kind of uh, just you know, flooding traffic from Mirai or some other kind of botnet or something like that. This is quite different. This is not relying on sheer weight of numbers of on volume to take out the ASA. What it's relying on is a bug in the code, uh, in particular the SIP inspection, which causes the appliance to crash. So in order to exploit that, you actually, you know, to trigger the crash, you actually have to have some kind of, it's basically an exploit. It's an exploit that doesn't work, but, you know, crashing the machine still has utility, as we can see. Rich, I was wondering what you made of the fact that 
this advisory this advisory has been released without a patch being available. I mean, that was basically latched onto by a lot of media organizations and it kind of increased the hype surrounding the story. But I was wondering, do you think Cisco's hand has been forced here because there have been attacks? They've felt, okay, we need to release an advisory with some intermediary mitigation until we can release a patch? Or do you think there's more going on there? I agree completely. I think it's ex- exactly what you said. They clearly were concerned because there were, this issue is being exploited in the wild. So definitely they're going to be having affected customers and they'll be wanting to get out in front of the story and say, okay, this is what we know so far. And there's, you know, there are things that you can do. So disabling the SIP inspection, if you're not using it. And of course, if you've got like VoIP phones or something going through the ASA, then that's an issue. But I think in many cases where you're not using that component, because it's enabled by default as well, which is another kind of difficult aspect to this for for some organizations is that these features which are enabled by default can cause us problems because often and often we're not even aware that they're using we're using them because they're just there and wasn't something that's in the particular use case for the appliance but because it's on by default it it stays there yeah and i think i think the lack of understanding around how attackers are actually using this vulnerability um, ties in nicely with the second big uh, exploit-related story of the week, which is even less clear, and that is with VirtualBox. Um, a lot of hype around this particular story. Um, Rich, perhaps you would like to explain exactly uh, what's been released there. Yeah, so this is a sandbox escape for VirtualBox. So to put this into some sort of context, virtualization software allows you to run entire computers inside of your computer. And it's become a kind of like computer inception. And this virtualization approach allows you to run a computer entirely in software, so you can easily spin it up, spin it down, assign resources, take away resources. And it also provides a kind of security layer in terms of that the, the guest, so the virtual machine, is isolated from the host, which is the, the real machine. And this sandbox escape allows code from the guest machine to be executed in the host machine. So it's a way to break out of the sandbox, break out of the virtualization, and uh, have attacker code running in the host. So this is usually something which is, of course, not desirable, and um, hence all of the the fuss. Yeah, do do we know how widespread uh, this particular software is, is spread? is used, I should say. Uh, VirtualBox is very popular. I don't have any figures to hand, but it's alongside VMware. It's very popular for for sort of virtualization on, you know, a desktop, laptop, that sort of a thing. And it's free and open source. And it also is built into other other products as well. So it's it's got, you know, it's got a decent amount of uh, of coverage and a decent amount of installs. Yeah. Now, the, the thing that we discussed uh, about this when we were choosing our topics was the, the thing that was rattling you was well what's what's the operational value of this uh, for an attacker yeah because i mean if you think about many attacker workflows that we've looked at you know you've got this kind of apt style in network intrusion playbook that you know whether you want to call it the kill chain or the attack lifecycle or the mitre attack approach you know there's there's a a reasonable kind of workflow that many attackers uh, follow when it comes to network intrusions, at least. And for things like this, where you need to be 
route or have you know admin privileges in the guest OS in order to do the sandbox escape. There's a bug in the uh, one of the Ethernet drivers which allows the um, the attacker to break out of the sandbox. It makes me wonder sort of at what point when you are traversing the network trying to get to your destination, you'll be in that situation where you'll have root privileges in a guest virtual box and you need to break out of the sandbox. I mean, if you are in that situation, then great, you know, this is this is the one for you. But uh, I, it's one that I feel has less operational value than, for example, a bug in uh, a well-known office, bit of office software or in a well-known server platform. Because I think, you know, those are, you know, have fairly direct applicability. You know, Eternal Blue being, you know, one obvious example, you know, that's was just, you know, set the internet on fire because it was just so useful in so many different settings. Whereas this one, I think, is fairly niche. Yeah, and I, there was a lot of hype around it. I think there was a slight irony in that the, the message alongside the release of it was saying how annoyed they were at the amount of hype around right. the Infosec community and the exploits that were released. So, yeah, the irony wasn't lost on me. Yeah, and one thing from me, so this isn't the first time we've seen exploit posted to GitHub or details about a vulnerability posted to somewhere like GitHub. And in this case, I mean, it's interesting that the, the person who found it, um, they didn't claim a bug bounty in this case. Instead, they just wanted to post it publicly. I was wondering, Rich or Mike, is this a, a good example? I know you said, Rich, it's, it's quite a niche vulnerability, this one, but does this strengthen the case for providing more bug bounties out there? Would it avoid this type of public release of vulnerabilities and exploit code? This used to be how things were done. If you go back to like the full disclosure list and this kind of things, I mean, this was how things used to be done. You know, there weren't these kind of vendor interactions and this whole, what's called a responsible disclosure by the vendors rather than by anybody else. You know, it's, um, you know, growing up in kind of on the fringes of the hacker community during the 90s, you know, you see that there was a much more adversarial relationship between the people who find the bugs and the people whose responsibility is to patch the bugs. Um, so, you know, things like bug bounty programs are like a change, is a step in the right direction. But, um, you know, dropping O'Day left, right and center on, on that is, you know, pretty much how things used to be done. <laughs> yeah, and kind of if you're looking at as an organization, whether you should implement it, you know, there are certain things that may be more relevant than others. Yeah, for bug bounty programs, I think that if you've got, I mean, there's sort of two main areas. One, if you have a product, if you're building a product which is, you know, has a wide distribution, let's say you're building a a program that handles zip archives or a program that handles media files like you know VLC or something like this, and that's you know got a very wide install base, then that you know those people are going to be targeting that for some kind of exploitation. Um, if you also have a very large estate or like a web app which has a very large um, presence or is very important to you, the downtime is very important or confidentiality is very important. Um, for example, if you are running some kind of financial service, then a bug bounty program might make sense for that. It might not make sense for sort of very, as I say, niche, very boutique things, which you know don't have a lot of internet exposure. But because you're going to spend a lot of time 
And this is the thing is that I think people think that, well, bug bounties are going to be really cheap, but it takes a lot of time to run them. I mean, I've only been on kind of you know, tangentially associated with these, but you know, you've got to understand what problems are, what problems you can solve with the bug bounty program. What and there's a lot of things that you can't, and also that it takes a lot of time. You have to engage with the community. You're going to get a lot of spurious requests. Just uh, random junk will flood your inbox, and you have to have people to handle that. And also make sure that you know the good stuff which might come through doesn't get lost in the in the noise. So it's a lot of work, like any community program. It's it's very challenging, but yeah, it can be very rewarding. Yeah, I think we probably need a whole other pod dedicated to the the pros and cons of bug bounties to to go into it fully. But that, I think that's a good overview. One of the obvious challenges of that is that you'll get more vulnerabilities, and there's already a. Uh, a challenge with prioritizing those and particularly when we look at the stories from this week with the cisco denial of service era day and the virtual box news i mean there is a big difference between the two right i mean in the way that we assess the impact of the particular vulnerability um perhaps raf you want to talk about that sure and Riz, chime in if if you don't agree with anything that i'm saying but i mean we've talked about it before on the podcast we've written about it every time there's a story of a, of a zero day or the new vulnerability it seems like everything goes into meltdown and people get really um, fearful and hyped up. And another area where a lot of people seem to seem to be quite scared of is whenever threat actors or people on forums start discussing vulnerabilities or start sharing stories. Now, the Cisco story, the Sandbox story, these are probably being shared on a variety of different forums out there. But you have to question, is is that the way you should prioritize which, which vulnerabilities you're going to look at, which ones you're going to patch? Rich, you said it to me many times before. No, that's not the way to look at things. Actually, in reality... Some of the most sophisticated groups don't even rely on zero-day vulnerabilities. But we'll leave that part to the side for now. When you look at vulnerabilities affecting your organization, which ones you should patch, it's the ones that directly affect the most critical applications in your environment. And alongside that, and really importantly, it's which ones have exploit code, which is available publicly, which ones are actively being exploited at this moment in time. The sandbox one makes a great story, but is it actually being widely used? How applicable is it to your organization? Rich, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely. I think, as I said, the operational value is where I would start to break down my prioritization. I mean, you mentioned like, you know, hackers on the dark web talking about stuff. I mean, you know, let's be fair. Most of these people are not, you know, pro, you know professional exploit devs and you know, may not really understand what's being said or what the actual issue is or how to make use of it and you know they see something cool they want to get on the hype bandwagon as well but in the end of the day at the end of the day you know they don't have that capability now there are guys out there who absolutely do have that capability but you're probably not going to hear them talking smack in the forum about it absolutely although there was that story what was it on the um the Lazarus Group indictment, uh, where wasn't it being dis- discussed on hack forums? Yeah, uh, the guy was like soliciting help on some like <laughs> you know cheesy forum for like can I hack? You know, can I has hacks? It was it was very very weird. But I mean, in that case, there was like a guy who was like that. But you know, there are clearly other guys in other parts of that particular organization who clearly had some skills. Okay, and I just want to want to finish by talking about kind of other things that you can. Um, become more informed about exploits and activities, particularly with APC stuff. And uh, we saw this week, 
well, I, it may have been this week, but the, the kind of the growing popularity of the US Cybercom malware alert Twitter handle, which is CNMF underscore virus alert. So they're starting to post uh, malware to virus total that they've seen used as part of campaigns. Who's excited about this, Rich? Uh, not me. <laughs> it's quite cool, though. Come on. It, it's kind of a nice novelty. I mean, it's good to see that they are actually sharing stuff back to the community rather than just taking from the community. So that's a good thing. And I'm all about that. I just worry that it's going to cause a lot of people to be told by other people to spend their time looking at, you know, random bits of APT samples on uh, VirusTotal rather than, you know, patching stuff or disabling macros or you know anything else which is uh, of very very high importance um you know of course it's uh it's probably a, a nice little resource especially if you're into malware reversing but you also think there's a slight danger of i mean if cyber command is the only public or national security body providing this type of of data of these type of samples to a particular private organization do you think there's a risk of these private enterprises becoming politicized and sort of that whole distinction between private and public being becoming more of a gray area do you think there's any danger danger in those type of partnerships i would say it's already happened Uh, you know we've discussed this quite a few times in the team we is basically a cold war on the internet and you pick a side by choosing which of the vendors you wish to be aligned with and i think this is um yeah absolutely is the 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 reality that that we have these days okay fascinating discussions gentlemen um before we conclude i think we'll go over to rich for kind of what's your key takeaway and if if you don't say operational value then i'll i'll be surprised i think Dark web social media chatter is kind of what I think is the most important thing. <laughs> no, I, yeah. So definitely for me, the operational value of a particular bug um, is the absolute most most crucial thing. I think if we think about how bugs get used in offensive operations, that really helps us you know, contextualize a particular issue. And that helps with the prioritization process. Now, there may be other things that, of course, have an impact like business risk and so on. But if you're worried about a particular intrusion or you're worried about um, how things can be used against you, then plugging in a particular issue into your preferred model of adversary behavior like MITRE ATT&CK gives you a great, great way to get a handle on the operational value of an issue. Okay, love it. Thank you so much, Rich. Lovely to see you this week. Anytime. Good to see you too, Mike. No, thank you very much, Mike. It's been great having you here this week. Hope you can come back soon and take over again. Indeed, but the real thanks goes to the listeners at home. Have a great week. <laughs>